Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. This is Willis Jenkins, the Margaret Farley Assistant Professor of Social Ethics, Yale Divinity School, speaking about faith and sustainable communities in a sermon delivered on April 29, 2007, at the Rhinebeck Reformed Church in Rhinebeck, New York. The land mourns. The wild animals and birds disappear, and even the fish of the sea are perishing. You know, things are bad when the world as we know it, as we read about it in National Geographic, sounds close to an angry prophet's poetic illustration of divine judgment. But um, before I go on about angry prophets, let me just say a word about um, this uh, University of Virginia regalia I'm, I'm wearing. I, I'm, I'm very pleased to be here, and when, when Dave and, and Pastor Lewis asked me to come, I, I didn't know if it was the custom to wear vestments or not, and I asked if I should bring them, thinking that ordinarily I'm, I might not. But then I thought, um, and I thought on top of that, Chavez Jefferson would not be entirely pleased to have the insignia of his university showing up as preaching vestments in churches. Um, UVA was one of the first American universities not founded with a concern to building up the church. Jefferson, of course, worried about the, um, the dangers that religion poses to democracy. But then it seemed especially fitting on second thought for a service that's focused on sustainable agriculture and the environment. Jefferson was, of course, also committed to the idea of a free and prosperous rural geography and durably sustained by a political community of family-sized landowners, each stewarding the land under their own care. So however, however much his own debt-ridden, slave-worked farm failed his ideals, he was in love with the idea of the American land. He thought it was kind of a second place for European civilization to work out a healthy relationship with the land and the people. Now, of course, we would like to have whispered into his ear that he might have listened to those peoples already here who had some decent ideas about how to work out a healthy relationship with the land. But even so, I think that Jefferson would look at our mobile, restless geography, mapped so conveniently after the pattern of a restless economy and its mobile finance capital, and he would worry about something else. He would no doubt think us in danger of losing something sustaining. He would see the jobless, propertyless concentrations of our poor living without claim on the land, and he would see gated communities of temporary houses for our transient affluent living without being claimed by the land, and he would worry about different perils to our democratic community, I think. So if it's in church that we can talk about the relationship of land and community, then he might let slide his insignia showing up. So what does the church have to say about land and community? Can Christians talk about a spiritual connection to the earth? Jefferson thought that cultivating the soil cultivates also the human spirit. He thought that a geography cultivated by free, modest, and educated landowners was essential to the health of a humane political community. In our own day, agrarian writers like Wendell Berry tell us that we are in danger of exhausting our soils and with them our souls. Berry tells us that our violent, fearful, belligerent politics cannot be unrelated to our violent, indebted, belligerent ways with the land. Now, agrarians, whether colonial or contemporary, may sound more nostalgic than practical, especially given the fact of our economic life. 
But when wildlife disappear and birds flee and even the fish of the sea perish, we should at least try to give answer to the questions they raise. How does our relationship to the land matter for a humane community? For Christians, what is the relationship between sustainable land use and sustaining grace, or between a way of living on the land and God's way of living with us? Those questions lie close to my own heart, for I grew up in a Virginia farming family, a family that loved its land and loved farming, but lost out to the unsustainable rural economy that in Virginia was finally doomed by the globalizing fruit trade of the 1990s. Of 32 fruit orchards in our county when I was a child, the Jenkins family apple orchard was one of the last three to go. It's an experience that has made me wonder about connections of land and community, about the good economy and sustainability, and about how those things might matter for a Christian life or for just basic human experience. The land mourns, the people languish, the wildlife and birds disappear. You know things are bad when your own personal experience sounds close to an angry prophet's poetic illustration of divine judgment. The Lord has an indictment against the inhabitants of the land, announces Hosea, and whatever specific thing Hosea meant for his day, we can guess what it might mean for ours. We see the evidence of unfaithful inhabitation, racist distribution of toxic threats, loss of biodiversity, fouling of rivers, acidified rain, empty forests, institutionalized cruelty to animals, even a threatened climate system. The morbid catalog can go on. I'm sure you've heard it. We can imagine how the prophet would fill out God's indictment against us. So, why have these things happened? What has gone wrong in our relationship with the land, with each other, with God? The quote from Francis Schaeffer in this morning's bulletin comes from one of the first books written on environmental concern from a Christian perspective. That was about 40 years ago. And Schaeffer is reacting defensively, you can tell, a little bit prickly, to the accusation that Christianity is to blame for an unsustainable culture. And he goes on to claim, on the contrary, on the contrary, Christians have special resources for talking about creation's value. There's something to his claim. Consider the earthy sweep of the biblical narrative. It begins with a very good creation and ends with the earth renewed and glorified. In this story, human agriculture and cities are not threats against nature, but blessings for the earth. The story begins in a tended garden and ends in a garden city. In between, the biblical narrative centers around the fulfillment of a covenant God makes with the whole living creation, a covenant with all flesh, as the Bible says over and again. The Gospel of Luke makes a point of connecting the coming of Jesus with this hope of all creatures. And the Gospel of John begins by saying that the whole created world hangs together in the incarnation of Christ. St. Paul makes a note of this connection between creation and redemption in several letters, opening with the description of the cosmic scope of grace, how God embraces all things, all creatures in Christ, restoring the world to communion with God. Reformed churches have a special gift for remembering that earthy sweep to the biblical narrative, because perhaps nowhere is a special value that Christianity can proclaim for creation more visible than in the way the covenant is described, especially by the prophets. For Isaiah and Jeremiah, humanity's relationship with God is bound up 
with their relationship to the land. When the people are faithful and just, the land flourishes. When the people turn away from God and become hardened and greedy, the land goes barren. For Hosea, the prophet we read, it's a relationship as intimate as marriage. He says in a previous chapter that God calls the land of his people Beulah, meaning married. When the hearts of the people are hardened in restless greed, the land suffers. When their hearts are pierced by word of God's indictment against them and they turn anew to God, their prayers then gather up the joy of the whole created world. As the Psalms say, the trees rejoice and the rivers clap their hands. So the covenant names a landed faith, a relationship with God that is always also a relationship with a place, a real authentic place where narrative and geography come together. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says that land is so much a part of the Hebrew Bible that we must recognize place as an indispensable part of our spirituality, of what we think about as right relationship with God. A relationship with the land, he's saying, is fundamental to who we think ourselves to be as humans and as humans in relationship with the divine. So, when we see ecological problems, it should make us wonder what's gone wrong in those relationships with one another, with, one another, with God. Now, of course, that can sound too literal, like wondering whose particular sin is causing a particular drought. But there's something right in the intuition that ecological problems indicate something amiss in our community with one another. A UCC report, a United Church of Christ report that came out just, uh, I think, last week makes that clear in regard to environmental racism. After 20 years of that church paying particular attention to the problem of environmental racism in this country, they say the problem is no better. Toxics are still distributed by no other indicator stronger than race. The land mourns and the people languish. And it makes us wonder what God might be saying to us about it. Or maybe it makes us listen anew to the message we've always heard, to that earthy narrative that we somehow miss the earthy part of. Walk humbly, show mercy, love justice. Thinking about environmental racism, we know to love our neighbors, we must recognize how the health of the people runs with the health of the land, that we are all vulnerable in body and soul to how the land is treated. Okay, but if it's true that an earthy narrative really does run through the Bible, why does Schaefer need to be so defensive? Why is he so prickly about it? Why should Christians often seem the ones slowest to care about environmental issues? I mean, what would make us miss that part of the message, that mourning of the land, that groaning of creation, as Paul puts it? And I'm sure there's all kinds of social and political aspects to answering that question well. But one aspect may have to do with another thread that runs through the biblical narrative. Alongside the covenantal themes of land and inhabitation are also sojourning themes of exile, exodus, and mission. There's an intrinsic mobility, a spiritual homelessness to the Christian life, exemplified in the life of Jesus. He's born in a stable to a family on the road. He's executed as an itinerant rabbi outside a city, and after rising from the dead, ascends out of this world. So there's a profound restlessness to the Christian faith. St. Augustine famously counsels us to keep our desires restive, our entire mortal life, until our restless hearts find rest in God. So there's an inbuilt Christian allergy to taking any earthly allegiance too seriously for fear that 
loyalty to any particular land will get in the way of loyalty to the community of God. That love for any particular community will keep us from loving the stranger or the distant suffering. An often quoted passage from the Epistle to Diognetius, an early Christian document, says that Christians can be citizens of any land because they know that their true citizenship is in heaven. They are members of a universal and eternal fellowship. And this restlessness for God, and this universal fellowship, is of course essential to the witness of Christianity. Martin Luther King often used that ancient phrase, citizens of heaven, in order to get people a little more restless with the community of God, to not let bad allegiances get in the way of being neighborly. For, southern, for Southerners, that meant overcoming agrarian racism to recognize our true citizenship in a universal fellowship. So at their best, restive desires for God help us move across the exclusive and violent boundaries that we can create to embrace others who seem distant and different. But praising that restlessness, that sojourning life, can make us a little too comfortable, I think, with the accelerating mobility and seemingly insatiable consumerism of our contemporary life. We've developed a different kind of homelessness, not one that can be at home anywhere, a good citizen of any land, but one that is homeless everywhere, a landed citizen of nowhere. We flit from one space on the map to another, taking an easy leave from neighbors we might not have ever known, often landing in a new neighborhood indistinguishable from the last, and we skip over the land indifferently interpreting it by the limits of the speed by with which we cross it, rather than the kinds of soil in it or the types of life it sustains. The patterns of our civic life are bound to the automobile and our landscapes shaped to service it. We are hurtled by professional and economic pressures that force us to be continually on the move. We find it hard to put down roots. We find it harder to cultivate them, and it almost impossibly romantic to consider ourselves members of a local land community. So we live in a homeless geography, and the landscape starts to look like it. If it's not ecologically unsustainable, it can begin to feel to some of us at least personally and socially unsustainable. All this frenetic, worrisome movement. Consider the lilies, says Jesus. They seek God's glory without so much frenetic movement and trouble. Don't confuse that restless being, that restless desire for God with anxiety for yourself. Love God, love your neighbor, and you'll have the things that you need. That doesn't mean a lazy complacency, of course. Just sitting around, consider the ravens. You may need to be as clever, industrious, and even as scheming as they to make the living God's creation offers you. Only do not mistake that living as a rival to love. Do not let your worry for food and shelter, your striving to fill storehouses and bank accounts, trick you into missing out on the giftedness of life and the love that sustains it. Do not let your way of living cut you off from the relations that sustain it. An authentically restive desire is supposed to keep us from being tricked like that by always searching for God's love at the heart of creation. We keep ourselves close to the giftedness of life. An authentically homeless spirituality is one in which we are made at home in the world by receiving it as a gift rather than grasping it as a property right. 
yet the church sometimes looks like it has been tricked. For we have sometimes been slow to say something therapeutic to this social homelessness. When we offer no gospel resistance to that frenetic restlessness and all the damage it causes in practice, then theology, then the church has gone unsustainable. If Hosea is right, the implications of that unfaithfulness are deeply wounding for our relationships with one another, with the land, with God, like the shaming, fracturing wound of a broken marriage. I can sense some of what that means personally from my own family's history. For several generations, my, my ancestors farmed on Old Rag Mountain in the Virginia Blue Ridge, some, somehow planting corn and cabbage all the way to its summit. They were moved off the mountain to the bottom of it in the 1930s when my grandmother witnessed her family's forced eviction to make room for the Shenandoah National Park. Up until a few years ago, my family kept an uneasy border with that park, tending apple and peach trees. On Sundays, my grandparents would sometimes walk the hiking trails in order to remember the names of those neighbors they had there, those homesteads and grave sites that were now being overgrown. You can picture my grandfather in his best Sunday overalls talking about corn and cabbage fields while hikers in recreational gear like walked by. They were attached to that place. It formed who they were, and they lamented the loss of that community to the end of their days. Uh, in fact, they both insisted on being buried 30 miles away so that if the park ever expanded, they would not become part of federal land. <laughs> In some ways, my grandparents lived sustainably, almost self-sufficiently. They had a dairy cow, a few dozen unconfined hogs, some laying hens, a winter's worth of potatoes, a huge garden, variously canned, frozen, dried, preserved. They had gravity-fed water, wood stove heat in their own timber lots. I mean, they were like a dream of Wendell Berry. In other ways, however, my grandparents fell victim to some unsustainable myths. They faithfully bought the latest offerings of post-war agro-technology from a World War II surplus bulldozer to national brand tree varieties to the latest pesticides which we propelled billowing into the air in great clouds. Wildlife decreased, birds disappeared. The fish in a faraway sea perished. And cancers struck both my grandparents and my aunt. In the span of their lives, that orchard flourished, faltered, and then failed, as even nonstop work and chemical heroism could not make the land keep pace with the globalizing fruit trade. Today, making sense of even a simple living from that kind of land in that part of Virginia requires making sense of global economics and ecological sustainability, of a changing climate and acidic rains, of a government farm bill that favors industrial farms over family ones, that sometimes discourages basic conservation, that makes for cheap corn syrup and everything but finding a decent peach and expensive odyssey. It means making sense of small farming within much wider ecological, economic, and political networks. Now my grandparents were simple people, living by a simple but hardy Southern Baptist faith. And there were some sustaining things to that faith. It gave thanks for the land's bounty, it bounded greed by extolling gratitude to the Creator and pride by indebtedness to the blood of the Lamb. But it was a fairly individualist faith. Even though I suspect that in the way that they lived it, there were some resources for some developing some deeper theology of a land community. There was grandma's 
great offerings to the potluck celebrations of local food, my grandfather's refusal to work on the Sabbath even when ripe peaches were falling on the ground, in their satisfaction to live a humble life in a small community in a mountain foothill. But I doubt that they ever heard a sermon link thanksgiving and sustainable local harvests, or spiritual health and land health, or their experience of redemption and ecological integrity. I doubt that even in this church of farmers, they were ever invited to consider a Christian perspective on the farm bill. In that absence, they were failed by the theology of a church which could only talk about individual stewardship, but struggled to make sense of a faith relationship to the land and the land's connection to a community. So insofar as their notion of life with God could not live into the life of the land community they were members of, that church read its scriptures, it preached its sermons, it planned its mission, it baptized its members by landless, unsustainable theologies. The land mourned, but the church had no ears to hear it. The wildlife vanished, and the birds disappeared, but the church had no eyes to see it. The inhabitants languished, but the church had no sustaining words for them. The angry prophet Hosea has something very hard to say about that. That these are the ways that we experience our infidelity to God's covenant with all flesh. To break faith with the land of God's promise is for Hosea as embodied and painful as marital infidelity. It hurts that bad. But the good side to a connection that intimate is that ecological restoration and community renewal can be as joyous and hopeful as a marriage restored and renewed. In my family's case, we've managed to hold on to a fair piece of the land, and as we've paused to figure out what next, something remarkable has happened. Beavers and bear and deer have laid claim to the place as home. An incredible array of birds comes through. New trees shoot up through craggy abandoned apple trees. A new state conservation program may make it possible for some form of sustainable possession to allow us to cultivate part and also conserve part. The birds and wildlife return, the inhabitants prosper, and I dare say the land no longer mourns. Now what specifically reclaiming the covenant means in practice for family farming in Virginia? I I can't say, even in my own family's case. But the resonance of the covenant theme with our experience at least grants permission for church communities Take notice anew of how the land matters for our relationships with one another and with God. It invites the church, especially the rural church, to think about shared meals as occasions to celebrate land and cultivation and cooking and community. The table as an instance of creation's harmony, a lived moment of the covenant. It invites the church to reclaim simplicity and rooted humility as spiritual virtues, in our society maybe even countercultural virtues. It invites the church to think about the significance of local communities for the experience of our faith, the way that place does shape our spirituality, our experience of the divine. Reclaiming how our relationship to the land matters for our faith, we might reconsider the lilies and ravens For along with other creatures and the rivers and the forests, they teach us to put our anxieties to rest in the love of God for all creation, and especially for each one of us. 
St. Augustine could hardly have intended our geographical restlessness and our endless desire to get the next thing. His point was simply to let God's love shape our relations to everything else. Well, um, a thousand years after Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas had a correction to make. He has a way of explaining. I think he can help us figure out how to talk about our relationship to the land as a way of letting God's love shape us. Thomas, you may have heard, infamously said that all creatures were made for human use. But he had a complex understanding of use. Consider the lilies and the ravens. What benefit do they provide to humans, he wondered. Well, he noted, Jesus tells us that they're there to show us the character of God's love. Lilies, one part of it, and ravens, another. Apparently, they bear a lesson to us about living in simple gratitude, and so keep us from making our worries the center of life. Lilies and ravens can only do that, Thomas went on to say, if they bear themselves a unique kind of love from God, and if, and, and if we love them enough to let ourselves be shaped by it. It's a good trick. Yes, God made the world for us, but not for whatever our anxious desires want. Not for filling our storehouses, not for turning redwoods into magazines or whatever. God made the world to entice us into love. To shape us by our relation to so many kinds of creatures. Each loved in its own way. So the only way to use the world the right way is to love it. That's the reason for the diversity and complexity of the created world, thinks Thomas. To bring us into the diversity and complexity of God's love. About Eden, Thomas said, God put humans there because God wanted to cultivate goodness in humanity by having humans cultivate goodness in the earth. That's as nice a theological summary of sustainable living as you could want. God brings forth the goodness in us through us bringing forth the goodness of the land. Strive for that, and good harvest will follow. Let God work goodness in you by you working goodness in the whole earth community, and everyone will have enough to eat, enough to share, life abundant. That's what the covenant says about life on earth. We're bound up together in spirit, community, and land, all reciprocally shaping one another. Now, one, one final point about this covenant. It's a harder point. If it means that spirituality, community, and land are, are bound up together, we really can't afford to think of stewardship as an individual thing, a private matter of responsibility between us and God. We know that. That's an ecological truism. However nicely we tend our own gardens, runoff from our neighbors can ruin it. However much we reduce our own carbon footprint, those in the next state may not. However much we may want to buy a local peach, the farm bill may make them disappear. The prophets were on to that. In relation to the land, faithfulness matters in collectives, in communities, and what the whole people does, and how the whole member of a watershed acts. And in that, I suspect New England regionalism, upstate New York may be a, a piece ahead of Virginia. Seems like small farms are more possible here, in part because of a regional culture. That's the hardest lesson of the covenant, that sustainability is not a personal lifestyle. It's not even something that church communities can fulfill. The land and our relationship to it is vulnerable to an entire political community, a whole people. Saying the covenant extends to all flesh means saying that culture and politics matter for something that touches us all the way to the center, for it matters for our spirituality. So what do we do? 
Churches certainly don't have all the answers. Maybe not even any particular answer. But we must at least help our community to imagine how the land sustains us. And covenant is one rich imaginative name for that. Being able to say how that sustenance has to do with a belief in God's sustenance can enrich public deliberations about democracy and land. It may even lend others a vocabulary to give voice to that personal connection to land and place that they feel. If nothing else, we can help animate the public imagination for how we can sustain possession of land in a way that sustains humane communities. Simply saying that we can and ought walk humbly on the earth, that we can and ought deal mercifully with other creatures, that we can and ought learn new ways to love justice in a changing economy, simply saying that, perhaps in public, can give heart to a good kind of civic restlessness, the sort that refuses an unsustainable, unlife-giving society and moves actively toward putting into practice a sustaining community. If it so happens that as a broad democratic coalition takes little steps towards that sustainability culture, that the land rejoices and God's heart is delighted, well, the church has its tricks too, and I suppose Jefferson would let us have them. I realize this has sounded <clears throat> abstract and theological. I don't know what else you could have expected from a professor, but that's what it is. It has its practical implications, I think. You have to find them, discover them on your own. It means something as simple as looking for ways to reestablish connections with community and with land. For myself, I try to remember it, maybe just barely remember it, by working half a day a week in a community-supported agriculture farm at the edge of New Haven. Others in our city participate in public gardens or in greening abandoned lots. Some teach children how to, um, how to recognize birds. Some take them on nature walks in the park. Some work with them on their own little garden plot as a network of people united around environmental justice to keep the city and its businesses honest about what's happening. There's another network that facilitates farmers markets. And all of those things contribute to building up a culture of sustainability that reunites community and land. So churches have their role. Reformed churches, I think, a special one, given the reformed tradition of covenant thinking. That covenant offers a vocabulary of membership that I think many kinds of people are looking for. For those of you involved in something like protecting and restoring the Hudson River watershed, you helped enact an ecology of grace, an ecology of membership, a way of living in gratitude, a spiritual connection. As you do something like pick trash out of wetlands or lobby for sane agricultural policies, the land rejoices and the river claps its hands. When wildlife can make homes amidst us, a little bit of the covenant revives. When the bird returns, perhaps with their olive branch, the waters of life restore once more. And when even the fish return, then go out on that river and cast your lines for the promise of life abundant restored, for the glimpse and experience of a broken marriage reconciled, for the taste of the river of life running again through the garden cities of God. Amen. Willis Jenkins is the Margaret Farley Assistant Professor of Social Ethics, Yale Divinity School. This was recorded on April 29, 2007. For more information, log on to www.yale.edu divinity.